Hello, listeners. Welcome to Strength and Recovery Podcast. You are listening to a special episode. We are launching an episode every single Friday because it is September. September is National Recovery Month. We want to celebrate that and just want to um, get the word out that recovery is possible. Recovery is exciting, that there's a lot to do in recovery, that there's a sense of community and you can really find some peace and healing. And today I'm sitting down with Julie Toy. She is our alumni coordinator from our Devon, Pennsylvania location. This is outside the city of Philadelphia, a beautiful facility, one of our larger facilities. And you are gonna just fall in love with Julie today. (laughs) She is an incredible person. Um, I think what I respect the most about Julie is if she's got something to say, she's going to say it. And um, I think she's the person in the room that you need. Um, She's the voice of reason. She she says it like it is. And um, I love her. I love having her on the team. She brings such a balance and a, a wisdom, a deep wisdom. Not only does she say what sometimes needs to be said, but she says it with compassion, always with a, you know, sense of the bigger picture and with our patients and our alums at her heart. Um, but also just, just a real, um, a deep sense of, um, honesty about her and, um, she's just a pleasure to work with and I wanted you to get to know her today. So welcome Julie to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and my gosh, very kind things to say. Thank (laughs) you. (laughs) Um, I met you, uh, um, you were an uh, alum, right? Yeah. And so you started, um, how did... Tell me a little bit about how you came to work for RCA. Yeah, so I was a patient here mm-hmm. at Devon, um, October 2018. Mm-hmm. I walked in the doors October 8th, so my sober date is October 9th. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, through my treatment and through stepping down in the process of, like, PHP, IOP, GOP. Okay, I'll, say what that means, because I know a lot of our listeners, like, yes. we start throwing acronyms out. and True. So um, I stepped down from inpatient okay. to partial hospitalization. So inpatient, you're spending the night here in one of our beautiful facilities. Correct. Okay. And then you go from there possibly to PHP. Right, which is the partial hospitalization program where you go five days a week for five hours a day. Okay, but you go home at night. You go home at night. Yeah. Okay. So you're slowly acclimating yourself back into regular society while still having your treatment program and your community. And from PHP, then you would go to intensive outpatient program. And what's that look so like? So that's three hours a day, three days a week. Okay. So now you're starting to get a couple of full days back to yourself, but still having a couple of days a week. And that support system. That support system is huge. Mm-hmm. It is huge. And it is detrimental, from at least from my experience and from my recovery, to make sure that I have that, that sense of security, safety, the therapy, my peers around me. Because when I'm at home by myself, I'm now that lone wolf, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so then I stepped down to general outpatient, which is like once or twice a week, you're still meeting with your therapist once a week for one-on-one sessions. So at this point, you're about six months sober. So you're now slowly acclimating back into full living Mm -hmm. on your own. Um, And during that time, I was introduced to the Alumni Association. Yeah, through another peer of mine. And um, I decided to go at one of their I guess they, they called it like a board meeting. Okay. Um, and I showed up for that. And from there, I saw all the amazing things that were being offered to people in recovery. Mm-hmm. 
And I wanted to be a part of that, right? I wanted to be able to give back to people who were just like myself. Mm -hmm. So I joined the alumni. And then from there, I saw all the amazing things that Recovery Centers of America offers to their patients and Mm -hmm. to their whole community. Um, So I decided to take a leap of faith switch careers and um, start working in the mission center. Yeah, so I started working there November 4th, 2019. So I've been with the company for almost three years. And our mission center is an amazing place. It's really the front lines, right? So if someone's in in crisis, someone or has a family member that they're wanting to get help for, this is the number that they call and you're the person that answers the phone or you are the person that answered the phone. Correct. For how long did you do that? Two and a half years. Wow. Yeah, two and a half years. And 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 did an outstanding job. Thank you. Thank you. Always. I mean, my heart and soul is in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was dealing with people who were just like myself or mm-hmm. the families that I could relate to being that I am a loved one. Because mm-hmm. I know a lot of people who struggle with the disease as well. Mm-hmm. So I have it from both angles, which was really good. And, um, you know, this is kind of where I was meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. And so you started, how long have you been alumni coordinator now? Seven months. Seven months. <laughs> doing an outstanding job and um, really growing our meetings here. We have in-person meetings at Devon, um, Tuesday nights, Thursday nights, and Sundays for ladies. Yep. And um, just growing that community and giving people a place to go and and people to be around, right? Absolutely. Yep. And And our our events are growing, so the attendance is growing in that as well, Mm -hmm. which is beautiful to see. People want to be a part of. Um, You know, I'd like to say that, like, it's – kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a program of attraction, not promotion, mm-hmm. right? So, and how we attract is because we're doing the things that we say we're going to do, yeah. right? The actions match the the words. And how important is that connection to maintaining sobriety? It's extremely important. So, you know, with the disease of addiction, it's isolating. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing for the family members too, which is why we offer this service to the loved ones as well. Um, it's a disease of isolation. Mm -hmm. And so the opposite of isolation is connection, Mm -hmm. right? So we can't do this on our own. And the only way I know through my own experience to survive this and to thrive in this is to have my community. So, you know, we do a lot of sober events. Yes. And so somebody says, I don't bowl. I don't want to go to, you know, a baseball game or, you know, I don't need that. Yeah, but it's it's really not about the event, right? It's not at all. It's about the connection. It's about the fellowship, uh-huh. right? Having that, it's it's almost like a sense of home, mm-hmm. right? It's a chosen family, which is beautiful, and um, it's not about the events. Mm-hmm. It's about building that connection, building trust amongst each other, mm-hmm. and building that friendship. And don't you think there's an element too of like the addiction had robbed so much that you don't know what you enjoy yes. at that point. Yes, I'll touch on that myself through my own experience. Excuse me. The things that I thought I loved in my disease, Mm -hmm. I found out when I got sober I didn't like. And the things that I thought I... What's an example of that? So just even like snow, right? I thought I loved the snow. But really why I loved the snow was because it was a reason for me to go ahead and use. Oh. Right? Because it's isolating, it's cold, I stay in. Or I'll go out and play in the snow because, you know, for whatever reason. Okay. But turns out, as I got sober, these are the things that I don't like. Okay. Um, and the things that I thought I didn't like in my disease, I actually am finding that I love. I love going out. I love being with people. I love trying new things. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not a baseball fan, but guess what? I'm super excited to go to the Phillies game September 24th wow. with my community, right? That's so awesome. it, it's a whole different dynamic of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the disease does. It robs us from everything. Why don't you take us back to the disease? And do you mind talking a little bit about that? Not at all. What did no. that look like? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> it was lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to say my disease was very hungry, mm-hmm. so it dictated my every waking move. Um, sometimes even my sleeping moments, right? Mm-hmm. Before my eyes would even open in the morning, I was already thinking of the next 10 hours of my day to make sure that I had the things that I needed to be able to feel well. Um, and my disease started at a young age. The first time I picked up, I was 10 and a half. And um, I picked up alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I didn't drink, you know, I didn't like the taste of it, but I saw people drinking and getting drunk that I wanted to feel that way too. So the more I, you know, the more I took the alcohol, um, the more that effect was produced and I started to like it. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, I was a little too young to be able to go out and seek it on my own. Um, But by the time I was in eighth grade, I was able to. Mm -hmm. I was able to find the people who had parents who would keep alcohol in their house and things like that. And I was going to school intoxicated in eighth grade. Um, and from there, you know, it just, it progressed and I thought I was just experimenting. Um, but there were signs from a very young age. I was in trouble with the law at four five, six and seven years old. Hmm. Um, my mom would be called home from work because the cops were at the house again for me. Mm. Yeah. I had a problem with authority. Um, I like to be that clown, you know, to make people laugh. But most of the times I was making people laugh, it was the wrong set of people. Right, I was seeking attention from the wrong set of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I was labeled as a bad kid, so if you're going to label me a bad kid, guess what I'm going to show up as? Mm. A bad kid, right? Um, so by the time I was in ninth grade, you know things had escalated. I had my first arrest. I was expelled from school. Um, I was sent to my first treatment program which was an outpatient program. I was put in with older people who were 18 and older. Mm -hmm. Um, I was 14 at the time. And I remember saying to myself, like, I'm nothing like these people. Meanwhile, I'm showing up to intensive outpatient intoxicated, Mm. right? But I'm nothing like these people. And um, I was put on probation, and I can remember my um, my, uh, IOP counselor saying to me, you know, you keep testing positive for substances. Like, I'm going to recommend when you go back to court that you go to inpatient. Now, was it staying mostly alcohol at this point, or had it progressed? It had progressed. Okay. Quickly. So my disease happened to progress very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, I was into multiple substances. Mm -hmm. Substances that most 14-year-olds don't even really know that exist, Mm -hmm. or shouldn't know that exist, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I was into cocaine, PCP, LSD, marijuana, you name it, if it was there. The only thing that I didn't touch at that point was opiates, hmm. um, which soon, you know, came into my life. Um, but, yeah, so intensive outpatient, my therapist was saying, you know, we're going to recommend that you go inpatient. And um, I remember showing up at my court hearing telling my pr- probation officer, like, nothing like these people. This lady's crazy, thinking that I'm this great talker and can manipulate, um, in which maybe I did or maybe he was just being kind, I don't know, but he said, you know what, I'm going to go in and tell them that the program is complete, but what I need you to do is go share your experience with other people. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that stuck with me up until now, right? It's still with me. Mm-hmm. And I can remember looking at him, thinking to myself, what story do I have to tell? And looking back, hindsight 2020, 
he saw the train before the train even hit the tracks, hmm. right? Before I even knew I was on that train, locked and loaded and heading down. And um, yeah, so my disease progressed quickly. Um, managed to graduate high school. And then uh, 17 years old, I got pregnant with my first daughter and um, put her up for adoption. So that was the first selfless, selfish thing that I had ever done. Um, and I managed to stay, so stay sober for about two years. Say that again, because you said, I think you stumbled across that word, and you said you gave your child up for adoption, and you felt like that was the first... Selfish, yet selfless act. Okay. Yeah. Can you explain that? Um, so, you know, I knew at that time, 17 years old, I wasn't ready to raise a child. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I knew that my life was completely unmanageable. Uh -huh. I didn't understand yet intellectually, but I knew something wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't provide for this this child, this being, this soul, the way that it needed to be. Mm -hmm. um, and I, looking back, had the reservation that I wasn't done. Right. I wasn't done running. Mm -hmm. um, and so I didn't want to put her in that danger. Mm -hmm. I wanted to give her the best life that I possibly could, which was giving her to a family who was going to be able to support her in all the ways that I knew I couldn't. It's amazing. Yeah. So I managed to stay sober. Um, during that pregnancy and then stayed sober for about a year afterwards, mm -hmm. got into a car accident and, um, that's when I was introduced to opiates. Wow. So from 19 to 40 years old. 19 to 40. Yep. I struggled with opiates. And what, what was the progression of that? Was that as quick as the alcohol had been? It actually wasn't. I mean, as soon as I picked up the opiates, now I had been around other people who were using opiates, so I was kind of at that point, if I can't beat them, I'm going to join them, mm -hmm. right? These were all my friends, so I was like, I don't want to be excluded from the group because I'm not doing this stuff, so let me just jump right in. The doctors are prescribing it, so this is okay. I didn't know how addicting they were. Um, by the time I was 23, I entered into my first inpatient treatment. Mm -hmm. um, I stayed for three days. I went in with the boyfriend, right? All these these stories that you hear, the don't do's, mm -hmm. I did them. Why? Because I thought I was the exception to the rule, right? And you weren't ready. I wasn't ready. I didn't know I wasn't ready, mm -hmm. but looking back, yes. Yeah. I wasn't done. Um, so a couple of attempts in and out of treatment on uh, just taking, like, pain pills. Mm -hmm. By the time I was 27, um, it had progressed full-blown and found my way to heroin. Wow. Mm -hmm. And what do you think was the block? What do you think was the were you holding on to something? Was there, was there just... There was, there was a lot. Um, I think a lot of it for me was abandonment issues. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we talk about that like dark pit inside us that needs to be filled. So we use substances mm -hmm. hoping to fill that void. Mm -hmm. Um, really what it was was a connection for me to my higher power hmm. right who I call God um, I didn't know that uh, looking back I know that I had talked to God a lot I gave a lot of foxhole prayers but I was very resentful and angry at God um, my understanding of God at the time was like a a punishing God mm -hmm. so I assumed the things that had happened to me through my life these were the punishments mm. yeah um, being an addict was a punishment, right? 
come, come to find out, no, that's not it at all. Um, I abandoned my relationship with God. Yeah. But I was never taught. I didn't come up with any kind of spirituality in my house, any type of religion. So I didn't really have a baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have a baseline for many relationships. My mom was a single mom, raised three kids on her own. Um, we were pretty much on our own our whole lives. Mm-hmm. So I was more survival, yeah. right? And I thought this is the hand that God dealt me. And I was angry about it. Guys, weren't on good speaking terms. We were not on good speaking terms <laughs> at all. <laughs> I turned my back, right? Um, and I'm grateful today. You know, I, I have that relationship with my higher power. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's beyond my wildest dreams. Hmm. I hear people talk about, like, life beyond my wildest dreams, and they talk about the things that they've obtained. There's external things. Um for me, it's the fact that I have a relationship with this higher being that can direct my life as long as I stay out of the way, right? Keep my hands off of things. Um, and also the fact that I can sit inside my own skin today, mm-hmm. right? And that that's not me. That didn't come from me necessarily. Because me, if I live in my delusional mindset, I am anxiety-ridden, I'm depressed, I'm manipulative, Right? I'm all these things that are like the survival piece of me. Okay. Today, I live from a different place, which is filled up with God. Wow. Mm hmm. And 2018, you come yep. to this facility. I do. I and did. you're a different person at that point. Totally different person. And you've been through multiple treatment. Yep. And I know there's there's a lot of shame sometimes in people saying, well, I've tried treatment. I don't want to try again. What gave you the courage? to walk in there honestly in in 2017 <clears throat> I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous mm-hmm. um, I had belonged to a different fellowship before then and I can remember being in that other fellowship and just kind of looking at the clock being like oh my god how much longer till this meeting ends I need to go out there and do what I need to do mm-hmm. which is use 2017 I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and um, I started to see a different light in those rooms, a certain glow about these people. And I so desperately wanted what they had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started to make these prayers to God. And I would say them probably about 250 times a day. And that's not an exaggeration, I don't think. I would say, if this is what my life is going to be like, if you're going to keep me stuck here, please kill me. Mm-hmm. Take my life, let my daughter grieve and get over it, right? So she can move on with her life. Because this is not any type of life for my child to be exposed to. And at this point, you're raising... Your second daughter. I'm raising, yes, I'm raising my second daughter. Mm-hmm. And at the time, so this was 2017. Oh, gosh, I'm terrible with math. I think she was like nine. Yeah. Something like that. Um, and it was pretty horrific at that point. Like, I was hallucinating when I had her in the car. I would stop in the middle of the road. So, I mean, like, there were, and I, I knew that something was going to happen. Mm-hmm. I was either going to die or I was going to kill us both or severely injure one or both of us. And I didn't want her to see me that way anymore. I didn't want her to see me struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what my prayer was. God, if this is what my life is going to be like, please take me so my daughter can grieve and she can move on with her life. Or or let me get to treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had managed to hold down a job long enough that I had health insurance. And so I called 1-800-RECOVERY. And um, it was September of 2018. Mm-hmm. 
And I can remember, like, I tried multiple times to, to talk to my mom about needing treatment. My mom assisted me with taking care of my daughter for a while. I lost custody of her, so my mom was the caretaker. And I said, you know, I really need to go into treatment a few times. And she said, you can't leave your daughter again. You're going to need to kick this at home. And I said, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. We've been so successful every time. Well, this time will be different. And um, so finally, when I made the call to 1-800-RECOVERY in September of 2018, I decided not to tell my mom until the night before I was admitting into treatment because I didn't want the guilt. I didn't want the shame. I didn't want to be convinced that I, I, I didn't need to go. Mm -hmm. um, my life was on the line. So not too many heroin addicts come in to treatment overweight. It's usually underweight. Um, I was 160 pounds when I walked in here because I had edema. So my, my body was filling up with mm -hmm. fluid. Um, and I knew at that moment, like, as that started to happen, that my body was probably breaking down. Mm -hmm. And I needed to get to treatment. And sure enough, I mean, my liver enzymes were skyrocketed. Um, but, yeah, so coming into treatment um, this time, and hopefully it's my last time, um, I was relieved. Yeah. I can't even begin to express like that same sigh of relief that you hear people talk about when they took that first substance it was an even greater sigh of relief that I was alive I made it to treatment and I was in a phenomenal treatment center mm -hmm. I got chills mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah it's incredible yeah and that's when my life started to change I fully surrendered when you're in this building are there any moments that you go back to that was like, that was the pivotal moment in this room. Somebody said that, or, or, or was... Yeah. So up on 6D, uh -huh. which was the floor where I was a resident, um, every time I passed that nurse's station, I flashed back to a nurse who got really real with me. Mm -hmm. And that was a pivotal moment. Um, she had 15 years of sobriety. I'll never forget this. Mm -hmm. She had 15 years of sobriety, and we were talking about sobriety. And at this point, I may have 10 days. Mm-hmm. And um, as she's talking, I'm going, I know, I know, thinking that, like, I'm just letting her know that I'm engaging in the conversation. And she slams her hands down on the desk, and she gets up out of her seat. She points in my face, and she says, I'm going to tell you something. You don't know S-H-I-T, <laughs> right? And, like, in that moment, my lid flew off my head, and I went, oh, my gosh, she's right. I know nothing. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to live, right? I'm 40 years old. And the way that I was living was not serving my life. And in that very moment, I went, wow. And it was a voice of authority, it which was, you I heard you say earlier. Yes. And you were willing to accept it at that point. I was. I was willing to accept all authority mm. at that moment, right? Like, I fully surrendered. I realized I have no idea how to live life on life's mm. terms. In fact, I don't even know that I understand what that concept means. So I need people to start breaking things down for me in layman's terms. I basically was walking back into my life as a very small child in an yeah. adult-sized body, right? I had no tools to live as a child, a teenager, and an adult. So I had to start all the way back at the beginning, which meant I needed authority. Mm. Yeah, I needed discipline. That's beautiful in a certain way. It's so beautiful. And today, like, th these are the people I respect the most, mm. right? Yeah. So you walk out the door, you do the, you do the aftercare. Yep. Did you, the aftercare. you were, you were ready for it all. I was. In fact, I was ready for even a recovery house. Wow. 
yeah, I went up to my case manager and said, okay, what's my aftercare? And I fully surrendered at this point. I said, whatever they tell me to do is what I need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had said to me, no, we don't think you need a recovery house. You can go home. And I was like, floor, what do you mean? Like, I'm finally ready. <laughs> and they said, no, we, we feel you're, you're in good enough shape. And I was mm-hmm. like, these people are crazy, right? And I actually went back home, and at the time, where I was living was um, in a rough Philadelphia neighborhood. I had moved myself closer to my dealers in case my car had ever broken down. And um, so they plopped me right back into ground zero, ground central, whatever, and um, I was fine. I was more than fine. Because for the first time, I had invested into myself, into my life. And I had a hunger to live. Mm-hmm. Not just live. I had a hunger to thrive. Mm. And that's where my life is. And I still see that today. Like, it's just, it's so inspiring. Thank you. To watch you interact with the alums, to watch you interact with patients. Thank you. And even watch you from time to time be that voice of authority to be able to say to someone what they need to hear, maybe not what they want to hear. Yes. Um, what is life like now? Oh gosh. Sometimes I wish I could just like pull it out of my head and show it to everybody. Cause I don't think words ever give it enough depth and weight. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's amazing. Um, I get to be a mom. Mm-hmm. I support my daughter all by myself with no help. I've managed to get myself out of homelessness, living in somebody else's house into my own place and make it not just a house, but it's a home. It's my serenity. Um, I get to be a support system to my daughter as she navigates through her own mental health. And that has been, um, that has been challenging. But had I not gotten myself better and work my program the way that I do, I wouldn't have these tools to help her navigate through her her mental health. so that to me is like just amazing that I get to show up for her every day and she's safe in my care and she knows that she's safe and we are like the best of friends. And then, um, and I always point this out when I share my experience, strength and hope is that like, ironically enough, I'm an asset, I think, for the company that I work for. Absolutely. <laughs> um, which is like mind blowing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was always a liability everywhere I went. And today I get to show up for my team. I get to show up for my partner inside this building. I get to show up for our patients, our alums. I'm accessible to anybody at any time other than when I'm sleeping. But even still, that you might get me at 2 o'clock in the morning. Who knows? Um, and these are all gifts and blessings that have come to me because I've taken the direction from my higher power. Mm-hmm. Right? I took that leap of faith. Um, by switching careers, like I did accounting. And mm-hmm. I made great money doing accounting. Wasn't an accountant, but I did accounting. I did bookkeeping mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And um, I stayed the course. I listened for that direction. I hit those pause buttons. I don't make those knee-jerk reactions and impulsive decisions anymore. I take my time um, and I try to grow as much as I can. If I'm not, if I stay comfortable, I'm not growing. Mm-hmm. So I always have to make myself uncomfortable And your life has purpose. And my life has purpose. Purpose beyond my wildest dreams, right? And like you said, like I can, um, 
I don't want to say like I'm an authority in those rooms with people, but I can, I do have a gift to be very direct with people. And they need that, right? Yes. Sometimes. I was just about to say, like, had that nurse not have been direct with me saying you don't know anything, um, it would have went right over my head. Mm-hmm. You really have to be direct. And you. I think it's the only way to get through from the disease to the soul, right? Because the disease is so loud inside our brains. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like when I do groups, they all come down and they're like, are you coming up today to yell at us? Right? Because I'm not yelling at them. I'm yelling at the disease. I got to get through that disease down to your soul. Yeah. Right? I need those seeds to get planted deeply. And if I'm not direct and honest with you and I'm sugarcoating things, you're going to find that little tiny crack to be able to manipulate it mm-hmm. or justify things. And um, this disease is killing people. What justifications do people make? Oh, God, they're endless. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, we can justify in any way. Like, oh, my life is so bad. Or, you know... I didn't get the job that I wanted or my wife isn't behaving the way that I want her to or my parents split when I was three years old and you would use two or you would drink two if Mm. your life went that way, right? I know you and I talked about um, before we logged on about me being molested as a child, Mm -hmm. right, from four to nine years old. And um, I used that as justification. Hmm. Had you lived my life, you would use two. And how do you talk to a woman who comes in and is holding that and is still, you know, working through that trauma? Yeah. What do you say? I mean, you know, for myself, I'll share my experience with them. Yeah. Um, I try to remind people that these things aren't happening to them anymore. Mm -hmm. Right? So, like, we don't have to hold on to that and use it as a crutch. What worked for me was to understand that, the things that had happened to me came from a place of, you know, somebody else being hurt mm. and turning around and hurting me because of it, mm-hmm. right? There's always two sides to every coin. There's always two sides of a story. Not to diminish or, you know, make it seem insignificant because these things are real and they are traumatic. Yeah. But there are ways to heal through it. Yeah. And that takes time. We're not going to untangle all these webs inside, you know, an addict's mind in 30 days. Mm-hmm. But we can start somewhere. And that means starting to talk about the real emotions that are inside. Mm-hmm. Getting honest with ourselves. I can get honest with, honest, and I'm doing quotes when I say honest. Mm-hmm. I can get honest with you, Jay, because likely if I'm being honest with you, you're already thinking this. So I think I'm being honest mm-hmm. when I'm giving this information. Mm-hmm. But am I being honest with my true self? Yeah. Right? And so these are all the things that I had to do to get myself over that hump of, you know, depression or holding on to past experiences as if they were happening still. Mm. And once I could admit to myself, like, and look at myself and say, wow, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay. And through my experience, I have an opportunity to, even if it's just one other soul, if I can touch that soul and help bring them out of darkness, that's the purpose. And Julie, you're doing that every day. I see Thank it. You. And it's it's really beautiful. Thank you. Um, one, one I, I mean, I guess if we had to wrap this up, like you talked about what life is like today. You talked about being able to talk to people directly and clearly. What's your advice to someone who's, 
sitting there today and they said, you know, I'm not sure. I got sober, right? I went through treatment. I'm doing all the things, but I'm not sure I want to stay sober or the cravings are too much. Yeah. How do you talk to that person? So <laughs> it's funny. Um, I work Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the program in which I work and that helps keep me sober. Um, one, if we talk about cravings, you know, my, my teachings in my book say we're only having a craving once we put that substance in our body, mm-hmm. right? So let's not think of it as a craving but more of an obsession, right? Mm-hmm. My mind's obsessing over this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's extremely important to tell on yourself first and foremost. And if you don't want to stay sober, all you have to do is stay sober for today, mm-hmm. right? Because all these feelings that we have, these emotions that are going on, like, they can come and go. Sometimes we're going to have a rough day. doesn't mean we have to pick up over it. Um, there's nothing in life that is too difficult or too awful to throw in the towel so quickly. Mm-hmm. If you do choose to pick back up, don't stay there long, please. Mm-hmm. And, like, I hear a lot of times where we say, keep coming back. I just ask people, please stay. Stay. I love that. We need you to stay because we need you on this side of the fight. Oh. Right? We're losing too many people to a treatable disease that is extremely unnecessary. And once we're gone, we don't get the opportunity to come back. We just got to stay connected. We have to stay. We have to stay together. Right? And if you're teetering on whether you want to stay sober or not, get with people who live And thrive in recovery. They're going to show you how to live and thrive as well. It's there for the taking. Mm. Just how hungry are you? That's why I wanted people to meet you. Because (laughs) you sell it like it is. And you're so passionate. I'm very passionate. Uh, (laughs) uh, Favorite recovery quote. Oh, gosh. Recovery quote? Um, I wouldn't say it's a recovery quote. Um, your life is God's gift to you. Mm. What you do with it is your gift to God. That's beautiful. Julie, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it so much. You too. Have a great evening. You too. Thank you for joining us today for the Strength and Recovery podcast. Real people, real experiences, real hope. This podcast is presented by the Alumni Association of Recovery Centers of America. If you're interested in learning more, visit rcaalumni.com. Here, you can fill out our web form to make sure you're receiving our daily recovery emails and are notified of special events. The Alumni Association of RCA exists to connect individuals to an active recovery community. It is our goal to work with alumni to help them succeed, belong, and ultimately serve others. We help our alumni succeed by hosting more than 120 recovery support meetings per month with both virtual and in-person offerings of big book studies, speaker meetings, beginners meetings, Monday through Friday daily inspiration meetings, 
meetings for men and women, and faith-based meetings. Second, we create a welcoming community that provides a sense of belonging with a full calendar of events each month. Speaker series, barbecues, holiday celebrations, bowling, sporting events, theater shows, and much more. Thirdly, we provide an opportunity for our alumni to serve both the recovery community and in our local neighborhoods. We offer speaker commitments, chair commitments, mentoring opportunities in our facilities, volunteering at food banks, recovery, and overdose awareness events. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Recovery Centers of America provides inpatient and outpatient treatment and has locations in Massachusetts, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Indiana, and Illinois. Recovery Centers of America, or RCA, was founded to break down barriers to expert treatment. We answer the phone and admit patients 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, are in network with major insurance providers, and provide evidence-based treatment in our world-class facilities. If you or someone you know needs help, call 1-800-RECOVERY and know we are here for you.